didn't believe in us, and now we've come to shed innocent blood. We are the pod people, and I'm full of bees, Matisse Van Rossum. And I'm the Dandeman, <laughs> Cleveland Mosier. Yeah. I'm looking for all that candy. I'm Ben Sheets. Sweets boy. <laughs> so yeah, we watched Candyman, the uh, 1992, I would call it, yeah. underrated classic from director Bernard Rose, who's done a few other movies. A lot of his movies are a little more obscure. He uh, did another horror movie called Paper House, I think, which was pretty popular in the 80s. He did another movie called Ivan's Ecstasy, which I really like, which is uh, an adaptation of Shakespeare, all set in like sleazy Hollywood. But this movie, uh, it's really interesting. It's, uh, you know, going off of last week's episode, it's a Clive Barker story. Um, obviously, the, the movie itself wasn't written by Clive Barker and like Hellraiser. Um, but this one was based on a story by Clive Barker. Called The Forbidden, I believe. Yep. Which I would be curious to read because this last week um, after we recorded the podcast episode on Hellraiser, I went and read The Hellbound Heart. And it was just, it was practically verbatim. Like it was, it was um, scene for scene. It did play out as the film oh, wow. did, I believe, to no exception. But it's still a very worthwhile read. Even after finishing the film, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I want to make that clear. Like, that even right after watching the film and it being so similar, it was great because it did dig into the character's nuance. You get a lot more of Julia's, like, background. My point on this little aside is I'd be curious to see, because that was a Clive Barker novel adapted into film by Clive Barker, I'd be curious to know what the similarities are with Candyman and how much they remained. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think there's a lot of Clive Barker-isms in this movie, um, but a lot of it is really subdued. You know, we're not getting the very visceral gore in quite the same way as we did in Hellraiser. Um, and this movie is a lot more deliberate and cerebral in a lot of ways. I'm sure going into it, especially with the poster they have set for it, a lot of people thought, you know, it was just going to be some sort of slasher movie, especially with Tony Todd as the yeah. main villain. It um, definitely wasn't what I expected. No. This is my first Same. time seeing this, too. <clears throat> I know that, that Candyman has a certain legacy, and uh, this film was not what I was expecting it to be based on that legacy. I did like it a lot. To your point, Cleveland, I know that uh, since Clive Barker is a British writer, uh, the, the story that this movie is based on is set in the UK, and it's much more about... Uh, Same with Hellraiser, actually. Yeah, it's, well, it's much more about British politics, kind of, and, and sort of like uh, worker inequality and, and shit like that. Whereas the film adaptation is set in Chicago and is very racially driven. So I think that there it's probably a safe bet that this is quite a bit different from the Clive Barker short yeah, story. I would think so. Definitely, I think, worth looking into to see those differences in adaptation. I would be um, curious to read it. Yeah. One, one thing, too, to wrap up on my, my point, my little, my little thought about having read uh hellbound heart after it did dig into the lore a little bit and i was also i was right last week when i brought up the fact that there might be more backstory on the homeless guy 
Um, oh, really? That sequence is actually explained in the book um, hmm. and is done and is really one of the, the only things that they do differently. He's the fucking engineer. He's the guy who made the cube. Oh, in 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 the book, and he's not a homeless man. It's it's a very it's a much more cerebral, uh, surreal sort of experience sure. with him. But I did just want to like mention that that um, there is more there, and they do dig into the lore a little bit more in the in the book as well. But again, beyond that, it's it's basically the same. But but good. But yeah, good. yeah, I'll definitely have to check it out. Um, but this movie was my choice uh, this week. And I chose it because I think it is a masterpiece and it doesn't really get the appreciation a lot of times that it deserves. I mean, there is a legacy behind it, but it's definitely like a second, third string classic as compared to your, you know, Texas Chainsaws, your Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, all that stuff. But I think it's in not, a lot yeah, of ways... It's not considered in the same team. Yeah, definitely. it... it deserves appreciation in a in a similar way because i think it sets out to do a lot of very ambitious things yeah i agree and uh i was quite surprised by that as well like when when y'all were talking about it throughout the week leading up to it i was under the impression it was a lot lesser produced film i thought it was a much more like independently made movie i i didn't realize it was gonna have the budget that it did um and and the production value that it, that it had um and that yeah it really it really surprised me i don't know what its actual budget was but i think it definitely takes advantage of things like shooting on location which i know you were talking about ben that they they did a lot of shooting in the apartment complex uh, in the Chicago projects that the the film is set in, um, and also just considering it's much lighter on effects than something like Hellraiser and like the the design for the Candyman and what you know Tony Todd's costume. I think a lot of that lends itself to a lower budget film and being able to do a lot more with less because it doesn't hinge so crucially on the effects like Hellraiser does. Yeah, I, I think too. I have an answer for why I think it's it it's not it doesn't sit in the same uh, or it doesn't sit at the table with mm-hmm. like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and the others. Um, and that's uh, that its demographic appeal is much smaller. Uh, an exclusively cerebral horror movie like this one, I, I think has a, has a smaller like smaller audience, especially for uh, when it came out in 92. And considering um, how subdued it is in the first half as well, how little action or gore or even really horror there is there's so much world building uh i'm not saying that that's a problem no same they're they're good i actually like it i I like the slow burn of this movie but i do think all of that stuff definitely contributes to why it's not considered on the same tier as as a lot of those other horror classics is because it, it it appeals to a much smaller niche it's much headier than a lot of those you know where a lot of those mainstream classics are very baseline enjoyable mm -hmm. without having to think about them too much yeah and that like that definitely answers the the why i think like why, Mm -hmm. why is it not held at that point but to answer the question does it deserve to be I'd say it does. I'd say it's yeah. quite good, and yeah. it and it should be. It's I think become better with time. 
as well, I would guess. I, I think that the, the framework and the, the audience ability to appreciate and take in more cerebral content has, has improved. And I think that it's a great time for a remake of it. Yeah, like, definitely. Well, before we get too into themes and stuff, I sure. should probably just quickly explain the plot briefly so people are completely in the dark (laughs) so um a pair of uh doctoral students are working on their thesis on urban legends particularly the candy man myth about uh the slave in the 1800s who had an affair with a, a white woman and he was what specifically he was he was killed, but it was in a particularly well, was, gruesome way. The mob. He, it was. He was killed. Yeah, at the hands of the mob. Well, yeah, they they lynched him. He was the son. He was the son of a slave, who was raised in high society and was an artist. And when they found out that he had been having an affair with the daughter of one of his clients, uh, that client hired a mob to hunt him down, cut off his painting hand. Uh, and they smeared him with honey and sicked a bunch of bees and, on him, and they stung yep. him to death. And to clarify, while while the term affair is is accurate, it would also be important to say like fell in love with. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Sure. Yeah, they learned that there have been quote unquote Candyman killings in Calibri Green, which is one of the roughest housing projects in Chicago. Um, or was at the time. Yeah, and it's a location that they actually shot at location at, which is really impressive considering, you know, how dangerous it was at the time and how, you know, there's a sort of fearlessness in shooting in location in areas like that, you know. The, the lines between reality and urban legends start to blur as they investigate further, I guess you could say. But going off what you were saying, Cleve, uh, you were saying this movie is ripe to be remade, and I totally agree. Recently, it was mentioned that uh, Jordan Peele is writing a remake. Uh, I don't know no. for sure if he's directing the I remake. Believe, I believe he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Writing and, and directing. Just the perfect person to do it, also. Well, because mm-hmm. they, I, what I was reading after we watched the movie is that they've already got a cast and principal photography is starting. Yeah, I actually heard this, yesterday... This in these next couple that Lakeith Stanfield is playing the main character fantastic uh, he, he's not Candyman, but he's still the main he's character great. more um, of him always what has but, he been in I know that name. Uh, he's so, in Atlanta sorry, sorry to, to bother, bother you, you. Uh, oh he's great yeah. yeah oh perfect cast um yeah it's it's oh, awesome excellent but he uh it's cool how Jordan Peele is working on this movie um because in a lot of ways I think Get Out was kind of influenced in a way by Candyman. Oh, certainly. I mean, the commentary is not too dissimilar. The commentary is similar. Well, I mean, in in that it is racial commentary. Yeah. And no one can do it You know, during all of Virginia Madsen's, our main character's scenes with Candyman, she was hypnotized on set. So that's why she is way off every time we see them together. Slow down. Tell me more about that. Yes. So she had a hypnotist on set, and she would get hypnotized every time Candyman appears in the film. Fucking what? That's yeah. awesome. And that's why a lot of times when you see those scenes with her, what? she's like frozen almost. Oh, shit. And you see her God. tearing up at times. 
and it reminds me of the the sunken place in a lot of ways yeah. you know the hypnotism scenes and get, get out. out yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely and oh, i shit. just think that's such a cool idea to play with you know it kind of blurs the line between reality and fiction in a lot of ways and at least in performance god what an what an awesome extra mile to go to like, yeah yeah absolutely wow the thing I appreciate it, too, is it's such a slow burn in the first half. They really take their time developing the story. I wouldn't say it's all just exposition. No, not at um, all. It really uh, builds the world and kind of sets the pace. Um, well, they, they spend so much time explaining the the urban legend of the Candyman. Uh, legends, plural, too. It's important yeah, to note. Well, I mean, that's sort of the nature of an urban legend, is yeah. that it, it mutates depending on who's telling it. But they spend so much time developing that without actually showing us anything that's happening it's all it's all just the investigation and i think that that is is really strong especially when you get the part of midway through or close to midway through when it's revealed that this uh gang lord in calibri green has sort of adopted the legend of the candy man as his own and that he himself is responsible for a lot of those murders and things that have been happening because he styles himself as the Candyman and he kills with a hook. Yeah, he's taken on the moniker. Right, yeah. exactly. Which I, which I think was, a, which was a twist that I was not expecting and that I thought was awesome. All through that, we still have not seen the actual Candyman. It's after our main character, like is able to put the guy in jail through her testimony that then the the real Candyman finally makes him Yeah, and the the cool thing about it is there's such a level of skepticism towards Candyman being r- real through the majority of the movie. Right. You know, even in the later half of the movie when we do see the actual Candyman, it's only in Virginia Madsen's perspective. Outside of yeah. her view, Candyman is not real. You know, it's a vision. Yeah, a it's, it's almost a mind virus in a lot of ways. I, I would compare it in a way to Freddy Krueger, except, you, you know, it's waking thoughts rather than dreams. Would you compare it to the Slenderman? <laughs> I would yeah. actually say that the biggest comparison I, you could make, and it, it's kind of, un, y'all, y'all might groan at this, but it's the Phantom of the Opera in in a lot of ways. Like, he acts as that. Explain. Yeah, explain. Well, he's... It's like the love interest ghost. I mean, it's just as simple as that, really. Like, But the but, Phantom of the Opera isn't like a thought form. Like, he's, yeah, he's a, a real person. He's a man. But, just because he's the, the quote-unquote villain who the protagonist kind of falls in love with, that I... Okay, well, I, okay, you just like the macabre, you know, kind of... Just, more in the feeling of it like sorry no okay. it's not in the, sorry because the, the, the phantom of the, the opera is okay. not a literal phantom yes okay like, no, I, all right of course. No, okay, but now i'm following but like it's following. it's a it's still a love story between her and a and a quote ghost unquote it's just in this scenario it's a literal ghost yeah like it is an actual phantom the romantic relationship is is one of the pinnacle aspects of the, the narrative it's really interesting how Candyman is presented in this movie i think tony todd Playing the Candyman is such an imposing dude. He's uh, so good. Great. And to learn 
after watching this movie that they originally wanted to have Eddie Murphy <laughs> in that role, and they literally could not afford Eddie Murphy. Thank God. I couldn't so have afforded got... to see Eddie Murphy. Eddie can Murphy you, would be way too short. Can you imagine what this movie would have been with Eddie Murphy in that role instead of Tony Todd? I literally cannot even imagine it. it it's it instantly becomes a joke to me. Yeah, like the, it immediately becomes Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> true, that's so true. Is the thing like like Eddie Murphy is maybe the least imposing individual on the planet. So much of what makes the Candyman such an effective character is how spooky Tony Todd is. And I mean, Eddie Murphy has a history of playing comedy roles, so he's known for making people, you know, laugh and enjoy themselves. Right. And to have such a somber character being played by such a well, that, yeah that's the thing I can't imagine like, I can't imagine like, it. No, imagine not just like him as Eddie Murphy appearing in the parking garage but imagine the Candyman as Eddie Murphy suspended on strings and flying out through the windows and stuff. I mean even with like, Tony Todd that moment was pretty funny that's I did, my I point like yeah. yeah no those bits are are, are pretty great uh, honestly though like just to to note those those moments real quick where like he the Candyman like haunts her and you know, he's like being suspended on strings he's just like straight up like pulled on a string yeah. through the window like and they were hokey i loved them I, and i yeah, wouldn't i wouldn't yeah. want them changed for anything no. like and they're great the nice thing about them is i give them a pass because you know they're all in her head too you know in a lot yeah, of ways that's a good point you know it's all projection um they're limited by her imagination yeah yeah sure i i think it's it, you can't quite say that it's all in her head because his appearances have very dramatic real world consequences. Oh yeah, absolutely. But uh, we get that scene, for example, when they're looking at these closed caption TVs, the security cams, and we see her freaking out at the Candyman, right. and really he's not there. Well, you know? well, sure, and and sort of his whole mo in the second half of the film is basically framing her for murder yeah which is awesome <laughs> like or in kills... some cases hypnotizing her into committing it uh i don't i, I don't think i don't she know ever yeah actually kills anybody the nice I thing think... though is it is so ambiguous as to whether she actually does it or if he's doing it and she's catching the blame for it she is i mean, I mean real life Either way, like during her, those scenes, yeah, that's what I'm but, saying. Like, uh, for instance, like when she wakes up and in the house, and the, there's the blood everywhere, and mm -hmm. like the dog has been killed, and she's clutching the knife. Fantastic scene, by the way, maybe my favorite. Oh yeah, scene when, in the, when the film really like kicks off. Yeah, uh, like that one. Like it's like it's possible that she was hypnotized and she killed the dog there. Like mm -hmm. uh, whether it was Candyman who ripped it apart or whatever. I mean, by the end of the film, it is proven that. Candyman is a spiritual entity and he does like operate in this film's reality as a phantom and like she wasn't just hallucinating and killing these people herself like they do decide to make that point clear which I mm -hmm. thought was interesting uh, I think a lot of movies like especially today would have left that point ambiguous they would have been like like you would the credits would roll and you would be wondering hmm it was it all in her head or was it not and yeah i think it's pretty decisive when she's in the in the insane asylum and she's talking to the the psychiatrist and she looks in the mirror and says Candyman five times and then the Candyman comes up from behind dude and like rips him in half with his hook yeah. i think at that point it's like okay yeah it's definitely not her just being yeah 
uh, hallucinating and the Candyman and killing. People also, that like... the baby is still alive. Yeah, that that means yeah. that like the Candyman was feeding the baby because she was like in prison or for she like was, a month yeah. or yeah. in um, and the, in the, the psych ward. Sorry, and yeah. the baby it, was uh, was missing. Yeah. It works Which, yeah. so well in the idea of urban legend, though, because a lot of times you know you can give a healthy amount of skepticism to any urban legend that's out there. You know, you can look at. Uh, little eccentricities of the story and be like, oh, that doesn't really add up. Well, usually you can can find its origin. Yeah, and for example, if... Slender Man is like a creepypasta like photo competition. Yeah, if the the Candyman, Virginia Madsen story was retold as it probably was in that community, you know, the whole idea is that story being passed down generation after generation, those details would come up and those would either prove or disprove Candyman to a lot of people. Right. And I think that's such a an interesting way of presenting it. I love it. Right now, I've, I've finally got my hands on, uh, uh, thanks for lending it to me, the, the latest uh, Sandman um, that came out in 2015, graphic novel. I definitely wanted to bring up the comparative between Gaiman's work and this movie. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know if uh, Clive Barker and Gaiman are like buds <laughs> or, you know, like would they, they're both being British, like it. horror, like or dark writers. Like they, I feel like they would exist in a similar bubble. Yeah, I could see that. Um, uh, so I'd, I'd like to look more into their potential knowings of each other. But regardless, uh, I do see a lot of strong comparatives between uh, Gaiman's work and Barker's work. Sandman, and then subsequently American Gods. Uh, I'm going to stick with Sandman, though, because that came out before. I think the first Sandman was in the 80s. Game was writing about thought forms. And he wasn't the first either. I mean, that like comes out of like, Tibetan Buddhism. But that idea of, of an entity gaining power just by being believed in uh, is is one of my f- personal favorites, and I've always I've always loved it in Gaiman's work. So it was it was fun seeing that interpreted. In, yeah, like, I a, thought that was a, a cool. I thought that was cool as well. I I like that. That's why we don't see the real San or San. <laughs> damn it, the real Candyman. Uh, the Sandyman. Sandyman. We don't see the real Candyman coming for Virginia Madsen until after she has gotten the 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 false Candyman arrested, because that dude was keeping the urban legend of the Candyman alive and fresh, and keeping people believing in it because he was committing actual crimes that people were attributing to this boogeyman, and she, you know, effectively ceased that. You know, she even told the the little boy who'd been helping her, been showing her around, like, Candyman's not real, you know, he's just a story, like, that was just a crazy guy, and it's after that that the Candyman comes from her because she's making people stop believing in him, and therefore he is losing power and will cease to exist if people don't believe in him, so... I haven't read any of the Sandman stuff, but I have read American Gods, so I, I did definitely see that uh, that comparison between in having to be believed in in order to exist and have power, and the less that people believe in you, the less you exist. So I, I think that is a, a, a cool concept for for a horror villain and one that I was not expecting for the, for this movie. No, me neither. Um, I, I wasn't expecting Sandman to, God damn it. 
now I'm going to do it the whole podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's all your fault. The Sandy Man. I wasn't expecting Candyman Candy to be a, a thought form villain. So I think that's uh, that's very cool. Yeah. Especially the the way that he's portrayed for the rest of the movie, you know, with with that in mind and the way he behaves and interacts with Virginia Madsen. And it's all in service of getting people to still believe in him. Yeah, and not to get too subtextual with it, but I think it's interesting telling that urban legend story in uh, reference to the black community and kind of collective trauma in a lot of ways right? Um, from the lasting impact of slavery. And you see it in the Candyman mythos itself, you know? And I think in a way it's interesting because Candyman unlike most slasher villains, you know, whether it's Michael Myers, who's just, you know, a psycho killer or uh, Freddy Krueger or Leatherface, where they're kind of just demented perverts. Candyman is really kind of a tragic slasher villain in that, you know, he's more of a victim of his situation, um, an unwilling victim of the situation more than an active cause of it yeah his his backstory is very legitimately like tragic yeah um, uh, and too because he does, he's not just lynched he's um covered in honey and then like stung to death by bees yeah like, that's a that's a shitty way to go speaking of which what did you guys think of using all the bees in the movie loved it i oh, loved it, it. Yeah. that's my well, I, honestly that's my favorite aspect it was i think the one truly um to me iconic element about the film and it's the one thing that separated it from just being sort of a, a a spooky man with a hook hand you know a more of a bland urban myth mm-hmm. the the bees gave it that extra bit of nuance that i really wanted yeah and i mean also they're they're so fundamental because of a complaint i know tisa and i both had about the film afterwards complaint is, is even a kind of a hard word but thematically like there wasn't much candy involved with candy man mm-hmm. like his his origin story Apart from being covered in honey, which isn't really candy, right. is is Has the only to do with candy. aspect of him. Uh, and I thought, I thought that was kind of strange. Like I get it. Like urban myth. Like with an urban myth, it's basically like the storytelling stuff, equivalent of telephone and stuff. Yeah, it gets lost. Gets yeah. lost and convoluted. Right. So it, like the, the getting covered in honey would become something to do with candy and it you know it the, the legend changes and builds. But his his name has always been Candyman. Like he gained the moniker Candyman after those events happened to him, why? Is, I guess, my my only real question or complaint. And even you know, it's not yeah. really a legitimate complaint because the bees are cool and, and I, I prefer it to candy. And I agree for the most part, especially when they, you know, they have a couple times where they have candy with razor blades in it and stuff in the movie. Well, yeah, it's really only that one time um, when she's investigating the apartment but building, I, right? If mm-hmm. anything, I if I were to guess why he was called Candyman is the white mob that... Uh, you know, lathered the dude in honey and got him killed by bees, jokingly called him Candyman afterwards because he's candy for the bees. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I just wish they would maybe explain. Make it a little yeah, more a little yeah. clear and yeah. not us have to try to figure out why he's called the Candyman because, like, when you're an iconic villain like that, ultimately it doesn't bother me too much just because of the nature of the Candyman as a as a horror character but it it did bother me a little bit i also loved the bees um i 
I really liked the the very beginning of the film where you get the the opening shot of just like a bunch of bees just like crawling all over each other and you have Tony Todd's voiceover narration and then it cuts to the shot of the Chicago skyline and that there's just like a huge swarm of presumably bees that's so massive that it's higher than the than the Willis Tower like that imagery is fucking awesome yeah i agree and, and it's 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 really great thematic imagery too for like his uh legend hovering over the city you know that's a great opening shot to just have the city like consumed in bees almost it's cool too because the metaphor i think goes even deeper than that like it doesn't just act as like he's a looming shadow over the city but the Bees themselves, bees operate on a hive mind. They act as a singular collective entity, but each one is a story in of itself. And so he's this being that is he requ- built around he, he requires all these that collectivism to in order to to exist. Yeah, no, the the idea of the bees is is very cool. It's it's awesome imagery. I'm I'm very much here for it. Um, and some of the stuff later in or towards the end of the movie in the climax, you know, when she's gone to his sort of, like, ghetto cathedral, and there you, we get those shots of, like, both of them, like, covered in bees, of, like, Tony Todd with, like, bees coming out of his mouth. Okay. Like, and, like, real bees, too. Like, mm-hmm. that, it's it's incredibly impressive. Uh, I, I know, which one of you was saying that they bred special bees? Yeah, yeah, that? so yeah. apparently I, I saw that apparently v- Virginia Madsen was allergic to bees. Um, so they had to breed specifically bees and use them within... 12 hours of being born so their stingers weren't complete enough to you know be able to Sting send her. her into anaphylactic shock or talk, anything talk about a fucking uh time constraint for for shooting a scene but yeah seriously though but in a way that's like one of the craziest elements of special effects i've ever heard oh, yeah you know? it's, well it's awesome and exactly like you said because if if you have that time constraint if you fuck it up and those shots don't work or the film gets caught in the gate or something and for some reason you miss that you can't shoot it again until you've bred more bees yeah so like it that that's a, a fucking crazy constraint but the payoff is so good and also like huge props to both of those actors but especially tony todd like having the bees in his mouth imagining that gives me the heebly jeeblies yeah, yeah like, that, sh- that shot of like his rib cage oh yeah when he bees. opens his coat and he's just got an exposed rib cage full of bees is uh extremely fantastic cool. and yeah. there's, a, there's a, just a wonderful layering too with the way his appearance is addressed because it begins as like he's this phantasm and then we see him and he looks like just a man with a hook and then that it's it's flipped again when you see the bees inside of his chest yeah like mm-hmm. which is wonderful like and i, I really well, appreciate what I, that. what I love too is like one of the best things about him is the the vocal effects that oh they use yeah for him. like Killer. his voice is so good and booming and imposing like present day i mean those are impressive effects but also like it has an undertone of like buzzing to it it's like the like you're getting when he speaks you're getting the buzzing of the bees inside his chest cavity they will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? 
with my hook for a hand. I'll split you from your groin to your gullet. Yeah, it's it's fucking excellent. It's it's so fucking good. Going beyond that, let's talk a little bit more about the sound, particularly the soundtrack. This uh, movie has a soundtrack by none other than Philip Glass. <laughs> I definitely did want to bring up yeah. how before the first bass note, like, like two measures into <laughs> the 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 first track, I was like, "What is this, Philip Glass?" Or what did I say? I was just, yeah. "No, no, no, no!" I went. Uh, it, it was like it was doing the part, and I just went like like along with the first bass note, not having seen it before. Coyote <laughs> like, well, yeah, just like getting... it's just it's so immediately recognizable as Philip Glass. Yeah, and it's doing those the at that part at the beginning the the overhead shots of like the streets of Chicago and stuff. So the imagery itself is also, looks like Coyote Scotty. It's also very reminiscent of Coyote Scotty. That was that was pretty funny though. And then the title comes up and music by Philip Glass, which is awesome because one of my favorite aspects of. Kaliyanaskatsi is the grid section of the film and where it just shows like people like at high speed and and cityscapes and it it looks like ants or, or mm-hmm. swarms of bees and insects. And this film does the same thing again with the helicopter shots. I wouldn't be surprised if it was probably a similar production team um, affiliated. There's, there's overhead shots of Chicago and it really does make people feel like like they're all part of a big beehive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the thing I like about the, the Philip Glass score is with those aerial shots combined with the score, it just makes... All of the movie, especially, you know, the scenes with the aerial shots just feel so grand mm-hmm. and such big scale in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. If I had to summarize, like, the one of the key themes of the film, it's urban elevated. Like, it's it's ghetto cathedrals, like you were saying earlier. Like, um, who better than Philip Glass for that? I mean, right. his, his whole M.O. is taking, like, industrial synths, but applying, like, these, these traditional, like, Gregorian arpeggios and, like, thematic elements common yeah. in Catholicism. This was, this soundtrack was, like, glass that is most goth, too, which I loved. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would never think of Philip Glass to do a score for a horror movie, but well, it works. Well, oh, so apparently... Well I was reading up about it a little bit more after the movie, and apparently he was upset about it because he was told uh, it was a score for, like, an indie, you know, cerebral horror movie, and when he found out it was, like, a big-budget horror movie, he was really upset and didn't want his name on it right away, Um, which is interesting because I think this movie did have a pretty good budget, but at the same time, it is still very cerebral, and it's not like he's just doing Friday the Thirteenth Part Six score or right, something, exactly. you know? As, like, yeah, I, I appreciate both both sides. Like, as an artist, I do appreciate like his unhappiness at being told like the work was going to go into something kind of indie and smaller scale, and then finding out that his work was going to be presented to like a, probably a larger audience, probably a larger like. You know, yeah, like but it, it used in a greater scope. Like I, he he might have wanted to put more time into it, or you know, like a, I don't created know, it like, with a different perspective. I, I get that, but at the same time, if they had told him what it was really going to be, he probably would have just outright said no. And well, yeah. I, I think that his score suits the film so well. And obviously he doesn't have a problem with his name being attached to it after he's seen the film. Otherwise, he would have pulled his his association. Yeah, and the other interesting part think, about it yeah. is you don't just write a score without 
seeing work prints or anything. The score oftentimes informs the editing of the movie. Right, you have to have cues. And, you know, stuff like that. So, like, there's no way he was in the dark about it completely. I'm sure he saw some dailies and kind of realized what it was. Maybe not quite on the same scale. But nonetheless, like, it can't have been that much different than what he was expecting. I think think his, like I said, I would never expect a Philip Glass score for a horror movie, but I think considering what kind of horror movie this is, that his score is appropriate and it suits... Oh, his score is amazing. And it it suits the film, so, like, ultimately... I don't have a problem with them maybe being a little less than honest with him in order to get it out of him. Because, I mean, that was also in the, the early 90s. Like, that was Philip Glass's heyday, the yeah. late, you know, the 80s. So he would have been in really high demand. And I, I do think that if they if they had told him what they were doing with his music, that he probably would have done something different. And that's my point, is that we or, will never or, know or what that would not have refused. done it. Yeah. That's yeah. what I, that's I, what I would much more have guessed, yeah. He would have refused. Um, I just, I wouldn't, in much of any circumstance, I wouldn't really condone, like, lying to, like, you know, like an artist you're hiring out is, is just my only bit. Like, if it can be taken as that. I just, the only point I'm really bringing up is just, like, I can see his justification yeah. for being unhappy with it. Whether it was effective or not, I think it absolutely was, and I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely not bringing that into question, but I, I, I do think it's a little, it's a little alone. Yeah, I, I agree somewhat, but at the same time, I kind of agree with the opposite side in that, like, it's easy to take a snobbish stance against moderate to large budget horror movies. Yeah. And I think absolutely. that's, that's kind of point. unjust and I think his work fits so well with the movie that uh I'm glad that they were able to well, right, convince him ob- to do it even if it was Obviously they thought his music would be right for the film and that by the end of it he did too otherwise he would not have had his name attached to it in yeah. the end and he does and I agree with Ben 100% that especially at that stage of Philip Glass's career and considering what kind of artist Philip Glass is I can 100% see him looking down on a genre film and not wanting his work associated with yeah. a genre Which film. is interesting, because like, it I, barely classifies as a genre film, which I guess is a point you've already made, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very rooted it is, it in... It is a cerebral film. Like, in, it does work with Philip Glass quite well for It's all, very for rooted all in the reasons. horror genre at the same time, and, you it's know... It's a genre film, for sure, but it, but it is... It is not your average horror film. It's that definitely a unique in, in take. Late '80s, early '90s. Yeah. yeah. So for for that reason, I can see why they kind of had to. I don't. Yeah. I, I would. I would wonder if it was even a like a lie or a half truth the way it was expressed to him. I'm sure. Like in that phase of the development, they were looking at that film as indie or as something more cerebral. I wouldn't be surprised by that, considering how cerebral the film is yeah. to begin with. So yeah, I don't. Think it's, what, it's probably like a you know a, a misstep in in production, not anyone's fault or anyone like trying were, to lie to their artists. I don't. Yeah, I don't think they were being malicious. But no. I think they were. I think they were taking into consideration the stigma behind of horror films in general and who they were working with. Because mm-hmm. I mean, especially throughout the eighties. And into the 90s, like horror has a stigma as being lower class, lower, lower brow, you know, and and I I think that is uh, unfair 
um, obviously. And I yeah, don't, we wouldn't be here I, otherwise. I, yeah, I don't. I don't think it has. I don't think it has. The genre has the same kind of stigma these days as it used to, at least to the same degree. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, in a way, this movie is kind of one of those horror movies that's about horror in a lot of ways. Oh, sure, it's incredible. Much meta. like you know, yeah. New Nightmare or Scream or something like that. Right. It's also commenting on the nature of legacy of horror and how you know these stories are passed down and kind of what makes horror what it is that in itself is why you know it's crucial to get someone beyond just a genre horror score musician for it and i why i really appreciate philip glass in it i I, I agree with all those points uh i will say i think the Philip Glass score works better as the movie goes along. At the big first half, uh, it feels very grand, but the story is very contained. Oh yeah, I think I think and, I mentioned yeah. that while we were watching the film. Yeah. I was like, it while while the lead while she's doing all of her sleuthing, you know, she's in urban areas. She's just like going into rooms, asking people questions about the Candyman, and then in between her going from A to B, suddenly the camera pans out and the helicopter, you know, in these helicopter shots and Philip Glass is playing with the, oh, oh, you know, sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, this is really epic. What, what's going on that's so <laughs> epic? I don't understand. And it's setting the tone for the rest of the film. But at the beginning, no, it it feels kind of displaced. It's like, yeah, what? The, yeah. the movie grows into the music as, as it absolutely. Goes. Yeah. I don't hate it for that. Like, no, um, me either. I, and I, I enjoyed it, but it was, it was kind of comedic. Like, uh, at, at the start, I was just like, what? what's going on? Like, what, why is, uh, why is this so epic? Yeah, the the grandness of the score seems almost at odds with the the smallness of the story at the beginning and how subtle it is. But um, it it still works for me as a whole for oh, the yeah. most part. There are a couple more things that I want to unpack before we get too far. Um, I want to talk about the location a little bit more. Yeah, how they shot on location. Um, I think a lot of the authenticity of that set just worked so well because it was lived in in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I mean, it really is a, a an ideal filming location just because, like, just the, the wear and tear on it and all the graffiti and the tags and stuff like that. Like, that, that's the kind of thing that it takes so much work to build a set like that. And if you're willing to go into a, an area like that and shoot on location, like, more power to you. Like, the set is ready-made for you. The the displacement of Virginia Madsen's character as, like, a, you know, an outsider going in um, adds to that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, you know, because it feels more dangerous for her being there. Um, just because the only other white people going to that project, even they say in the movie, is just cops, it's the cops you know? Yeah. It's just well, like the police. when she, like when she and her friend go the first time, and you know they get they get hassled by the guys, you know, on the ground floor when they start going up the stairs. Those guys like whistle up the steps, like cops coming up the back, you know, even though they're not cops. But yeah, you're exactly right. You know, it's it. It's very much that tried and true method of putting somebody in an environment that they are extremely out of place in, which is 
you know, something that is commonly done in in horror in general. Mm -hmm. And speaking of being displaced, I did want to also bring up uh, the the cool, like, gentrification commentary that they have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. we see the lead... um, talking about the candy man to a friend and they go in she goes into her her own apartment's bathroom and she shows that you know behind the mirror like the 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 bathroom mirror is just a hole in the wall and when you remove the bathroom mirror then you can see the apartment beyond and their apartments were built the, the same way as the apartments on the other side of the city the exact in the same ghetto. the exact same uh blueprint as the uh cabrini green apartment housing yeah and so that when she goes in there it is the exact same floor plan and layout that she knows so well, but it's so starkly contrasted to mm-hmm. what she lives in. Which is neat because, like, so obviously she's on, like, the, the wealthier white side of town, right. and and then the Candyman murders happened in these houses in the that projects, are the same. Yeah. And when you find out, too, that, like, she's sort of, like, this reincarnation of uh, the Candyman's lover, their physical displacement is sort of represented in the two buildings. Like, they are, like, sort of, like, lovers worlds apart you know like they're it's sort of like the two buildings sort of represent that same like dimensional polarization like and i, I thought that was really neat like yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a cool it's a cool comparative and apparently uh what i was reading is that jordan peele's Candyman is gonna take place in the same location in cabrini green because that area is apparently now quite gentrified oh my god that's um, so cool uh from what i understand so i mean not that it's gentle that's not cool but like (laughs) but that but that no no no, i i the premise is really cool though yeah Yeah, so that his his remake of Candyman is going to be in the same location but dealing with gentrification because that area that used to be a housing project is now becoming gentrified oh hot damn which is brilliant that's awesome but yeah i really like that concept i love the the use of the the hole between the apartments um we get it in cabrini greens um she goes through one of the holes in one of the uh quote-unquote candy man apartments and on the other side there's just a big face mural that she goes through oh i love it out of the mouth yeah Yeah. she crawls through it so she doesn't know like that the mural is there until she gets she passes through it and turns yeah it's just the candy man's head and the hole is is his mouth like jagged teeth no it's it's fucking dope the sets of this movie are fantastic Mm -hmm. i love it and and how that that theme sort of carries over again later once she's been committed and her husband has moved in his side piece uh, now that you know his wife is uh, is is in the loony bin or whatever, and that his uh, his girlfriend is just immediately redecorating the entire apartment and repainting it this like awful gross pink color. So it's very much about like taking the familiar and and mutating it into something else over yeah. the over the course of yeah. time. Oh, 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 what did I, what did I call the color? Oh, Pepto Bisqual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's such an ugly. <laughs> color of pink yeah like um no and i I, yeah i definitely want to like key in on those uh paintings a little bit more i loved i loved like the use of graffiti and spray paint on the walls to act as murals because it's it's again it's another 
metaphor for like urban or another example of like that theme of like urban elevated because we get those like those cathedral locations almost like these like Mm -hmm. abandoned urban places that have been made into cathedrals sorry to make that more clear the idea of using like graffiti as a fresco um was was awesome like very cool and they feel like they're graffitied images like they they feel like they're made by urban art um, well, especially it's, it's considering perfect. that part of the Candyman mythos is that he was uh, an artist. He was a painter. Mm-hmm. He did portraits of yeah. people. So to kind of have that that theme developed and, and, like you said, elevated and become something different with the graffiti. And then under the graffiti having the old murals that presumably other people had done or maybe the Candyman himself has done of, like, his actual lynching and having his hand cut off. And as we see uh, the painting of his lover who looks just like Virginia Madsen. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that for those sequences where you see, like, the, the paintings beneath from times before, I wish they'd been a little bit, like, better quality because, like, they still, like, the, you know, like, the, the faces yeah. were well painted and stuff. Yeah. And, like, I, I, I was kind of wishing, like, they'd, they'd been a little bit better, but it's a minor, minor. Yeah, they yeah. Do, they do match, like, the graffiti they do mat like artistic technical ability which isn't very high it, it makes it more horrifying and creepy but it's like also if this guy was an a notable artist of the time and this was his paintings are not very good <laughs> well i mean <laughs> which, it's never said that they're supposed to be his paintings yeah you know, it yeah. could have very well been done by yeah it is you know who know the urban legend you know the tale is passed down yeah, so in the world it, the, it, could, the, it could still potentially fit the, so i'm the, fine with it but but i but i do love that i that idea of him you know as a thought form needing to be worshipped and believed in so his realm where virginia madsen goes to find him is like a church it's like a cathedral Mm -hmm. it has the altar where he lays her out you know he's like a sort of like a god but not really uh but i love the the presentation of him as a god oh same yeah well the thing i love about it too is you know at the end uh, Virginia Matson. There's a giant pile of garbage and wood and trash that's put up next to Cabrini Green because they're going to make a giant uh, bonfire right. there. And she hears the baby in there, and she goes out to try to save the baby. The kid from earlier sees the hook in part of the the bonfire, and he uh, gets everyone to come out and burn the bonfire. And so, right, because he thinks the Candyman's in the pyre. Yeah, in that. a lot of ways, Virginia Matson is stuck in there while they burn it down. And in a lot of ways, the tables are turned because she gets to experience the the mob of people, right, unjustly exactly. killing her in the same in not the same way, but in no. well, and know, also they don't know that she's in there, you know. But yes, I the 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 parallels are are very apparent it's her Joan of Arc moment, you know, it's her, it's her moment of martyrdom where, you know, she goes in to save the baby and it ends up costing her, her life. She, you know, brings the baby out, but still dies because of her, her burns. And then we see, you know, at her, at her funeral where it's just her husband and the priest and then the entire, uh, community of Cabrini Green shows up, you know, so it's like the worship of 
of the legend is continuing. Uh, and I love how that the last shot of the movie where the credits roll over it is the the new mural of her as like a sainted figure with like fire for hair. Yeah, it's extremely. Um, cool. Well, and then the the interesting thing is by her almost escaping the fire, you know, she crawls out to give the baby back and then dies on the ground in front of everyone. Right. She cements her place in the legacy of the story of Candyman. Exactly. So she lives within that story. You and know, they can finally the same... be reunited. Well, and that's, and that's why when her husband at the end is in the bathroom and says her name five times in front of the mirror that she is able to Helen, that she, that's what it is Helen, yeah, yeah. that she Fire. comes that she comes for him and brutally murders him you know gets her vengeance finally but like you said because she is now cemented in the urban legend of the candy man so she is a part of that thought form and its power uh which i thought was a really nice way to tie off the yeah film. yeah it's a, a really nice it's really bow. nice conceptually the the helen thing in practice was a little corny to me. Oh yeah, her makeup but it wasn't... really didn't yeah. bother me all that much because I think conceptually, from the idea of legacy, it works very yeah, yeah. well. And it's short, like it's yeah, just a single it's shot. If, yeah. if it had been longer or more drawn out, like I, it would have been really bad and problematic. But no, for for as quick as it was, I think it was fine. Yeah, I, actually, uh, I think that that brings up my last point, and that was this film is cerebral in concept, but in execution, it's it's still it's a it's a it's a horror. You know, like. Mm -hmm. um, not yeah. a slasher film, but it's it's a you know it's a monster movie. I really appreciated that about it. Um, I I had to think about it some. If it had put the spotlight on its cerebral elements more, I think it would have felt like it was up its own ass. And I really appreciate that it it has a much it has like a pretty direct approach. Mm -hmm. Um, and it I think it's the, it's one of the the film's saving graces. Yeah, and I I, I would give credit for that for two uh to two aspects i would give it to tony todd for a yes. fantastic imposing Candyman performance just incredible and i would give that credit to the atmosphere and set design of everything you know between cabrini greens and even some of the side locations for example um uh, there's a side story where the kid explains that a kid was killed in one of the bathrooms near Cabrini Green, like he had his dick cut off or something, right? And was murdered in there. And she goes inside, and you can almost smell the room. The room, oh, it's, you know, yeah, just from the look of it. There's things written on the wall in literal shit. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it, it just and and have it too is like she's such a competent actress that oh, like yeah. you, you're just reading her expressions and you're feeling it along with her yeah. like like she is she is such a a fantastic like avatar for the viewer like you you really you feel for her in every situation that she's in and not feel for but feel with her like you yeah. feel trapped in those scenarios too and coming from like my own like shitty background and whatnot like i'm i'm more primed like i think a male viewer is more primed to be like want to save and protect and help or whatever and this this film does such a good job of breaking that bullshit and just making it about you relating with her directly like on yeah a, on and a they 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 base her character in such logic and rationality in the first half that when 
she is starting to be blamed for all these murders. You really feel for her because you see her perspective of logic and that all going out the window with her. Yeah, you know? like, yeah, yeah exactly. you're, you're trapped along with her mm-hmm. for that because y'all, y'all, you share that that with like that. Yeah, logic. it does a really good job of taking the viewer along for her descent into madness. Which I mean, it, it you know there is supernatural things taking place literally, but the way it's presented, it very much does for a lot of it feel like she might just be going crazy. Yeah, and, definitely. And it does the the movie does a really good job of taking you as the viewer along for that ride, which is something that I can definitely commend it for. One of the last comparisons I wanted to make was between this and Silent Hill, largely for for atmosphere. Which oh, a hundred percent. I think is is the word that we've yeah. been using a lot, but haven't used this this whole time. Is just just this this film captures atmosphere incredibly well. Yeah, with the locations, a hundred percent, especially that bathroom location. Yeah, like that gave saying, me like, yeah, hardcore yeah. Silent Hill vibes. You know, with the the shit on the walls, yeah. and and also like it reminded me of playing. Silent Hill 2 and finding those like little riddles and those disconjointed like hints you know like you you go into a back room and you find like a a wire like wrapped around a doll and it somehow uses a key like when you melt it with this thing or whatever like the logic doesn't really fully apply Mm -hmm. and you see those same sorts of sequences in this movie like she's going through like the the bathroom stalls and when she opens the last one there's like written on the wall like like an there's like an arrow pointing down to the toilet and when she opens it there's bees in there and it's yeah, just like yeah it's full of bees I, I guess so many cool like yeah like it, it just it definitely like kind of gave me that same like horror detective-y kind of vibe well, yeah. I mean, that, scene's, that scene is so great too because it's when we're first introduced to the fake Candyman character that's when he you know he comes into the bathroom with with a couple of his cronies and roughs her up but the way that they present like him coming in and us seeing it over the shoulder and him having a hook in his hand it's like it it, it does present it like oh here's the boogeyman that everybody's been talking about so much it just turns out to be a dude but then the real boogeyman shows up right after that 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 progression is really masterfully done i think Mm -hmm. Anything else? I mean, this is a great film. I think I've yeah. I think everything. I think that's pretty much all I had to say. Um, I'll go ahead and rate it first, I guess. Um, yeah, I picked this movie because I think it it's really an underappreciated gem. I think it's an incredible movie. I think it's one of the best horror movies of the '90s. Frankly, Tony Todd is incredible. I haven't seen any of the sequels, and I'm worried about seeing them. Uh, I know Tony Todd is in them, but I don't think they really follow this one. And this one stood alone so well that I don't know. But uh, this one is fantastic. The score is great. I love the pacing of it. I love the racial subtext and the gentrification subtext. The atmosphere is awesome. It's just an incredible movie. Absolutely worth watching. Holy shit, those bees, those 12-hour-old bees... Just incredible. Five out of five. Yeah, I I really liked this movie a lot, too. I'm glad I finally got a chance to see it, because it's been on my list of shame for a really long time. I'm glad that I took some time to ruminate on it, because I think it's it's kind of a dense film with what it has going on that, you know, you might not really grasp all of it immediately after watching the movie. I guess one of my only, like, major complaints is that after how long it takes for Candyman to finally make an appearance, which I, I do love that build-up, 
I just wish there was more Candyman in the second half. But, <laughs> True. Uh, yeah. If anything, that's that's like my only real complaint is that I I think that it does such a good job of building everything slowly that I wish it. I almost wish it went a little bit more off the wall uh, by the end. Clive Barker seems to do a thing where he has these iconic characters that he just sprinkles in. Like, the Cenobites also don't show up much, but they're so iconic, just like Candyman, that they really stand out when they do. Uh, It's It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I I liked this movie a lot. I can't say that it had quite the same impact on me as as Hellraiser did, but I I do think it's a very very good, strong film. I'm going to give it a a powerful four out of five pots. I concur with everything. 4.5 Uh, 4.5 is that an option yeah i had to think about yeah. it uh the only reason like i i'm i'm going for that right after i finished the film i was i was unsure about how i felt about that movie i really had to sit uh, on it for a little while and to the film's credit i really came around i guess my issue was as i went into it and i think this is like the fourth or fifth time like on the podcast i've said this is i was expecting a slasher movie going in i keep doing that <laughs> with these films and uh i was expecting the Candyman to be like presented uh more i don't know like as like a, a monster monster mm-hmm. so when he's a man it, it kind of like it, it really affected my expectations in a, in a in a weird way but i love the presence that he has and he is this sort of this this phantom figure but he also does sort of represent like a, a lover character for her and um and relatable too and the monster's really not supposed to be relatable and uh i appreciated that a lot about it uh, so yeah, four point five, four point five for me. If that's, that's yeah, a, that's all right. Well, that'll give it an average of four and a half out of five pods between the three of us. Clive Barker, woo! <laughs> y- you done it. But before we wrap up completely, it's time for a word from our sponsors. So we don't actually have a sponsor today, but you talking? I was thinking about it. Right? You know how like last episode, like Clotilda got like ripped into a nether realm. You know, or whatever, sure, yeah. yeah, or something. Totally. I don't know. Something happened to Clotilda. I don't remember the specifics. Um, but uh, I was thinking, if we let this episode just be sponsored by Clotilda, it could bring her back as a thought form. Are, are, okay, five times, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, you, you got it. You got it. Ready? All right, let's go. Clotilda, 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 Clotilda. All right, then. Okay, cool. All right, well, there you go. That's our sponsor. (laughs) This week's episode brought to you by Clotilda. All right, that'll bring us to the end of our episode on Candyman and wrap up our two-episode Clive Barker retrospective. (laughs) Next week, it's time for The Velvet Buzzsaw. Which uh, I still know nothing about. I have been avoiding the trailer for it. I didn't watch the trailer. I saw one thumbnail and the art looks rad. Yeah, all I know is it's uh, Dan Gilroy, the guy who did Nightcrawler doing a horror movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. I want it. I am very excited. I'm I'm here for it. And uh, yeah, so we'll be talking about our second film of 2019 next week. Shit, that means I need Um, to watch Nightcrawler. I still haven't. Oh my god. Oh my god. I know, I know. You're in for a treat. Yeah. I'm jealous, honestly. Nightcrawler's fucking awesome. Hey, One of my should, should I watch? Should I watch Nightcrawler before I watch Velvet Buzzsaw? Or should I go in for a different perspective than you guys and not watch it? Honestly, it's up to you. Nightcrawler is such watch a it. treat. Like, I heard that, it's an amazing like, movie. I I, see it. But yeah. should I see, watch it before Velvet Buzzsaw or after? Maybe just to get a different perspective, I'll wait. Yeah. 
I mean, well, whatever. it's up to you. I mean, I think it's going to be its own movie. So, yeah, like having that insight might be interesting. But it's totally up to you. And you guys I'm, already have that. Insight, I'm honestly so, yeah. jealous no, that you cool. get to watch Ni- Nightcrawler for the first time. I'm excited about I it. I love Nightcrawler. Um, but anyway, that'll bring us to the end of this episode. If you like the episode and want to support us, take a few seconds out of your day to leave us a nice little rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever. You know, hit those five stars. Bring us up in the numbers. Make us a more powerful thought form. Yes. We can't exist if you don't believe in us. You can also follow us on social media if you believe in that um, on Twitter at PodPeoplePod or on Letterboxd at Letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod for our whole back catalog and all the films we talked about on the show. Yada, yada, yada. You know the spiel. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. And I'm at Mr. Sheets. Uh, send me all of your hot takes on horror. I think next week uh, I'm going to start a new segment called Ben's Contrarian Corner, where I throw out one horror-themed hot take and we uh, discuss it a little bit. So I need more more content, guys. Please send that send my way. Send hot takes. Uh, as you know, I'm on Art Station as Cleveland Mosier or Iron Prism. And uh, also, yeah, keep your ears to the rails for more It Stares Back news as we continue to progress. We are inches away now. Oh, yeah, um, and if you like thought forms, uh, also uh, check out if Castle Battles if you haven't seen it. We got one of those in there, so that's kind of fun. Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so um, <laughs> available on the App Store and Google Play Store and Steam. Yeah. Anywhere else? I think that's, yeah, Google Play Store, Apple App Store, uh, Steam. Yeah, yeah those three. Right. Those are the magic three. It's the a castle cheap, battles. It's a fun, cheap game. Get worth it. it. Worth yeah. it. All right, well, thank you as always for listening, and until next time, keep your bees clean and healthy. Candyman, 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 Candyman. Candyman. Get- <gasps> ah!